Our Bible reading for this morning is Psalm 26. So 26 is a psalm of David. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have led a blameless life. I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Test me, O Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and my mind. For your love is ever before me, and I walk continually in your truth. I do not sit with deceitful men, nor do I consort with hypocrites, or abhor the assembly of evildoers, and refuse to sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence, and go about your altar, O Lord, proclaiming aloud your praise, and telling of all your wonderful deeds. I love the house where you live, O Lord, the place where your glory dwells. Do not take away my soul along with sinners, my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands are wicked schemes, whose right hands are full of bribes. But I lead a blameful life. Redeem me and be merciful to me. My feet stand on level ground in the great assembly of a praise the Lord. What does it mean to live a blameless life? We've just heard a bit about that as David's been talking here. But what does it mean? What is it, is it in, even in fact possible to live a perfect and holy life? Surely Jesus is the only one who lived a life like that, that was completely sinless. So how could we ever replicate a life like that? So David's the author of this psalm, so how can he say that if Jesus is the only one that is fully blameless? Initially, it kind of sounds a bit proud, doesn't it? Surely he's fooling himself as he prays to this holy God. So what does it mean to live a blameless life? Can you and I live a life like that? Let's have a look at this psalm together and learn what we see through this lament that David goes through. In the first few verses, we see that David is seeking a life of holiness. And he also asks the Lord to reveal all the sin in his life to him. Let's read that again in the first few verses. Vindicate me, Lord, for I have led a blameless life. I have trusted in the Lord and have not faltered. Test me, Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and my mind, for I've always been mindful of your unfailing love and have lived in reliance on your faithfulness. David was an upright man, and we were even told elsewhere in the Bible that he was a man after God's own heart. This means that he loved what God loves and also hated what God hated. It's evident from this psalm and other references to David, that his number one priority in life is to trust the Lord and to live in obedience to him so that he can honour and glorify God in that way. In David's honest reflection of his life, he can observe that the life he aims to walk is in one of integrity and without accusation. Notice that David does not say, my life is blameless, but instead for I have led 
a blameless life. That may sound very similar, but the nuance is in the word led. It suggests more of a direction rather than a position. For example, if you're in another country and you're led by a tour guide, you're following them because you know that they know the place you're in. And that doesn't mean that you know everything about the country yourself, but it means you're listening to the tour guide and you're following them where they're leading you. David aims to live a life like that, one that is led in the direction of being blameless. Again, the following statement, I have trusted in the Lord and have not faltered, doesn't necessarily mean that he is sinless. He's just stating that he has continued to trust in the Lord. So we can see here that David's attitude is not one of pride in himself, but actually showing his faithfulness towards the Lord and his deep desire to live in obedience to him. In leading a blameless life, David is doing his best to live one without sin, but he recognizes there's still sin within him, and he needs the Lord's help to get rid of that sin, to be aware of it and to be vindicated and tested. He asks God to examine both his heart and his mind and so he's aware of the evil that still lies within him. In trying to understand more about the word vindicate, I came around a commonly used tool by doctors to help diagnose patients. They use the word vindicate as a mnemonic, mnemonic to help remember what symptoms to look for. It turns out the process of using this tool is actually a good example of what it means to vindicate someone. So each letter of the word vindicate stands for something that you need to do or look for and check off. So V stands for vascular, meaning the first thing you need to check is the patient's vascular system. And this is the system for vessels that carries blood around the body. The second letter is I, which stands for inflammatory and infectious. So you'd have to then check for that. At the end, after going through all of this uh, you come up with a, a list together that you've compiled and you know everything down and then you have a better understanding of what condition the patient might have or you might be able to rule out others. This is what it means to vindicate someone, to clear someone of blame or suspicion. And that is what David is asking God to do right here, to vindicate him and clear his name of all wrongdoing. And in asking the Lord to do this, he becomes more aware of his sin and knowing that there's more sin that remains, he can then deal with those sins and kill off those sins which entangle him. Notice as well at the end of verse 3, it is not himself who he relies on, but on God's unfailing love and faithfulness. In verse 3 it says, For I have always been mindful of your unfailing love and have lived in reliance on your faithfulness. He is human. He's unable to fully deal with his sin by himself. And it's only God that he needs his help and is able to help him in dealing with that sin. That's David's life. But what about yours and mine? I wonder what your pursuit of holiness is like. I think the answer to that question is very much influenced by our attitude to what sin is and also our view of God. 
So what is your attitude towards sin? When you think of the sin in your life, or of even the ways you've fallen short today, how do you feel? Think of one particular way that you've disobeyed God recently. Now, as you think about that, what was your initial feeling and reaction to it? Do you think yourself, oh, oops, I shouldn't have done that. Maybe I'll do better next time. Or you, maybe you know you're going to sin in that way again, so you're a bit apathetic and have given up trying to do something about it. Perhaps you are in the habit of confessing your sins each day to God, but you still don't quite have the same attitude God has towards sin. What is God's attitude towards sin? Well, it didn't take long after God created the world. Humans started to corrupt it with sin. And we find that what God thinks of sin in Genesis 6. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. This then leads God to send a flood to the whole world and restart the world again. Notice that God is so troubled by sin that he wiped the face of the earth to deal with it. And this will be the same on the last day when God destroys sin once and for all. God's wrath and anger will be poured out on all those who haven't accepted forgiveness through Jesus. God hates sin and can't have anything to do with it. He is so pure, divine, and holy. And so sin is completely repulsive to him. That's why Moses asked to, when Moses asked to see the Lord's face, he could only see the back of him, or else he would be killed because God is so holy. Again, the specific laws that were given to the Israelites to protect them and make sure they had no association to sin. Jesus has now come and made a way for us to be forgiven and approach him. But God's attitude today has not changed. And it's not different between the two confidence. What's your attitude to sin like then? And how does that compare with God's attitude as well? David continues with this idea of running away from sin in the next few verses. He doesn't want to associate with those who are evil, but instead proclaims the Lord to others. Let's see that from verse 4. I do not sit with the deceitful, nor do I associate with the hypocrites. I abhor the assembly of evildoers and refuse to sit with the wicked. I wash my hands of innocence and go about your altar, altar Lord, proclaiming aloud your praise and telling of all your wonderful deeds. David is still in the pursuit of holiness and of being blameless in the sight of the Lord. And the way he goes about that is, nothing to do, is to have nothing to do with those pursuing evil. The deceitful, the hypocrites, the evildoers, the wicked, all of them he wants to stay away from so that he doesn't become like them. The book of Ephesians talks about this in a similar way in chapter 5. 
For of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. Now, this doesn't mean we have to completely rid ourselves of associating with everyone who sins. In fact, that would be impossible. Notice the chosen words sit with and associate with, though. If you were to do these things, you'd be spending a long time with these people. Everyone needs to hear the good news, and so it would be wrong for us to discriminate against those people wanting to hear it. But we do need to be careful about how much time we spend with the wrong crowd, because we might become part of the crowd. You've probably heard that saying before. Maybe in school your parents told you, don't hang out with the wrong crowd. At school there's always different groups of people that friendships are based on. Typically there's always the sporty group, the nerds, the popular crowd, the high achievers, the quiet ones, the gamers, and those who like to party. You're probably thinking of which one you were when you were in school at the moment. If you're interested, I was part of all the nerds, but we all know nerds rule the world, right? Anyway, it's true, isn't it? We become what our friends and colleagues are like. Who are the people in your life at the moment whom you spend a lot of time with? What kind of people are they? How are you being influenced and how are they rubbing, up, rubbing off on you, changing the way you think and maybe even the way you think about God? The digital revolution has given us more ways to communicate. And I think this actually gives us a new friend that we're being influenced by. Through phone calls, television, websites, movies, and social media, we're able to communicate anything we want worldwide and instantly. And because of this can happen so quickly, it also provides with so many more external influences that we might have access to in our lives. Did you know that the majority, 55%, of Australians spend more than two hours on their phone each day? To put that into perspective, if you spend two hours on your phone each day, that's about 30 full days each year that you've spent on your phone. If you extend it to five hours a day, that's 76 full days during the year you have been on your phone. Two hours a day is also equivalent to 8% of your life. Five hours a day, that's 20%. That should be quite concerning, right? You may like to look at your phone later, and it can probably tell you the exact amount of time you spend on your day recently. Now, initially, that actually isn't a problem, but it depends on what we're using our phones for that determines whether it's an addiction or not. My guess is that the apps we're using are either doom scrolling, so like scrolling through feeds, sharing memes, watching videos, or playing games. The content that we receive through these apps usually is out of our control. And from what our friends post, the people or groups we follow, 
the ads we receive, much of it probably isn't glorifying to God. If you're spending much of your time doing this, it's likely influencing the way you think. Over time, you're going to slowly change and consider what's good and evil. Now, I don't want you to go home today thinking that your New Year's resolution needs to be spending less time on your phone, although that's probably something you may need to seriously think about. And feel free to chat to me after the service because I can give you some good tips of how to go about that. But what this passage is really teaching us is to be aware of those around us and the influences in our lives that's hindering us from our pursuit of holiness. How is what you're doing and the decisions you're making fulfilling your life goal to glorify God? Like David, we need to wash our hands of innocence, throwing off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, fixing our eyes on Jesus, who is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. But we can't just stop there in applying this. We need to be active and on the front foot out of the same desires to be blameless and innocent from evil, we should desire to proclaim Christ to the world. Rather than being won over by the wicked, we are to be involved in winning others to God. It's not just a passive stance, but an active one. I also imagine that in living in this way, forward thinking, telling others about what the Lord has done, that will help us in our pursuit of godliness. Similar to what's called the protege effect, which states the best way to learn something is to teach it to others. In verbally articulating your understanding of what you believe, those truths become more ingrained into you and more of a reality that they are true. So who are you witnessing to at the moment? And how are you going in your pursuit of holiness and growing in sanctification? And can those people who are proclaiming Christ See the way that you're leading in that way is blameless. So to recap, we have, from what we've heard in the psalm so far, one, we should be leading a blameless life, asking God to reveal all the sin in our lives that we're unaware aware of and relying on his faithfulness. Number two, we need to stand innocent from the wicked, being aware of those who are influencing us and instead proclaiming Christ to the world about what he has done. Now we get to the last part of this psalm where David continues to pray about his desire to draw near to God. Let's read the rest of that psalm together from verse 8. Lord, I love the house where you live, the place where your glory dwells, do not take away my soul along with the sinners, my life with those who are bloodthirsty, in whose hands are wicked schemes, whose right hands are full of bribes. I lead a blameless life. Deliver me and be merciful to me. My feet stand on level ground. In the great congregation, I'll praise the Lord. In the flow of this psalm, this section is quite a contrast to the previous sections. Verse 4 to 7 is phrased in a negative tone, showing what David doesn't want to do, whereas verse 8 onwards is phrased in a positive way, describing what he does want to do. Instead of saying, I do not sit with the deceitful, he now says, Lord, 
I love the house where you live. I don't want to be with the wicked, but instead I want to be with the Lord, my God. David sees being with God the most important thing he can do in his life. He loves him so much, in fact, that he wants to be in the place where God's glory dwells. I've seen this kind of connection reflecting often in many of my friends as they've got into relationships. When you love someone, you want to spend a lot of time with them. In fact, you're so dedicated to the relationship, you're willing to reorientate your whole life to spend it with that person. It's actually quite funny because many of them say before they start dating that they are so busy. You'd think it's nearly impossible that in our busy cultures today, they could even find the time to meet regularly. But surprisingly or not, they're actually very happy to make that a priority. They think it's important because it requires a lot of time to get to know someone and to grow a relationship. And so it is evident, when you love someone, you want to spend a lot of time with them. I wonder what our romantic relationships say about our heavenly one should be like. David loves God so much that he wants to be in the place where his glory dwells. It's because of this he also knows God will deliver it and show mercy to him. This is why he seeks to live a blameless life. In David's desire to live this way and the direction he sees himself going, he also knows the destination he will arrive at. The destination is the most blameless place the holiest place, which is God's house where his glory dwells. But verse 9 and 10 indicates that he's looking further than just beyond the temple as he seeks mercy from the Lord in relation to his eternal destination. Do not take away my soul along with the sinners, my life, who are those who are bloodthirsty, in whose hands are wicked schemes, whose right hands are full of bribes. He knows that everyone will be judged on the last day, and there's a consequence depending on what side you belong on. If he was among the wicked rejecting God, his soul would be taken away from him. However, his life of innocence demonstrates his salvation. David looks at his heart and seeks God, and through this lamenting psalm, he concludes with assurance. In verse 11, I lead a blameless life. Deliver me and be merciful to me. My feet stand on level ground in the great congregation. I'll praise the Lord. At the start, David was looking back on his life, but now he stands and looks forward to where he is going. He looks back and observes his life of integrity, but now stands assured in God's house with his people and looks forward to continue leading a blameless life. So how can we live a blameless life? How can we stand assured in God's presence? It's by drawing near to God and loving the place where he dwells. For David in his time, this was the temple. But even then, because he was not a priest, he was unable to enter the temple itself and only the outer court. For us in our time, God no longer dwells in the temple. So there's no point in us packing our bags and heading off to Jerusalem. 
God now dwells with his people through his spirit, which he has now given freely to all those who profess to know and love him. Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has provided us a way to draw near to God. As the writer in Hebrews says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This is a great privilege for us to be able to draw near to God in this way. It means we can talk with him anywhere at any time, in any situation, and know that he will hear us. How do you draw near to God? And how does your life demonstrate your love for him? Maybe you want to love God but struggle to show that because your life is filled with too many other things, being too busy for God. If so, I encourage you to make time for God this year. Put him first and then everything else in your life will work itself out. Maybe you have reorientated your life and made God a priority, but you feel as though when you meet with his people and read his word, you still feel distant from him. If so, I encourage you to persevere. And God says that if you draw near to him, he will draw near to you. Perhaps you don't really love God, and your life shows that and demonstrates it. You come to church each week, because it seems like a good thing to do, but really it has no effect on your life. If so, repent, and Jesus offers a whole new life for you, one that has eternal hope and a greater purpose. Or maybe you're, at the moment your relationship with God is actually going really well, and you can honestly say, like David, you've led a blameless life. Praise God! But also, be aware that that doesn't turn into pride and self-glory. Wherever you are at, the general application is the same. Continue to draw near to God and seek to lead a blameless life because he deserves the glory and he longs for his people to love him back. Now, there's just one last thing that we shouldn't forget as we wrap up. As awesome as it is for Jesus to be our great high priest, giving us access to the Father, it's actually not God's final plan in wanting to dwell with his people. Because Satan still remains in this world today, in the picture, disrupting our relationship with him. Just like David was looking back to his eternal destination, this is where we should be looking to as well. When Christ returns again, to judge the living and the dead. He's going to destroy destroy sin once and for all. And once sin is dealt with, he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. This is how God will ultimately dwell with his people, as we read in Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them 
and be their God. Now that will be a glorious day when we see and experience God in fullness. May we lead a blameless life this year, standing on level ground in the great congregation, praising the Lord and looking forward to that final day when God will dwell with his people perfectly. Please join with me in prayer. Dear Father, you're such an amazing God who is perfect and divine and holy in every way. It's so amazing that we can even have relationship with you because you are so good and perfect. Yet we are completely the opposite, full of sin, continue to look to ourselves, bring ourselves glory, being distracted by the things on this earth and things that don't please you. Father, thank you for Jesus and for providing away a great high priest who is able to mediate for us and have relationship with you. Please help us to become more aware of the sin of our lives. Through your spirit, may you reveal those things that we're unaware of so that we would continue to grow in our pursuit of holiness and live in a way that is led in the blameless life like David did. May we be aware of the influences that are in our lives today. And may we be thinking about how we can most glorify you each day. Father, we pray that we'd continue to lead this blameless life, standing on a level ground with your people, praising you as we look forward to that final day when we would dwell with you perfectly. We pray this in your name. Amen.